Well, happy New Year. Yeah, it's so good to be with all of you. And we did have a fantastic time. And I don't really see it as getting a new husband, but I love having a better husband. <laughs> He's awesome. Well, this isn't the new that we're talking about up here. <laughs> this is some of you, it's been on your prayer list, I'm sure, for, for months, even years now. But we're not talking about that better right now. You know, for some of us, when we hear better this year, we immediately move into a place where we have some baggage attached to us, where we feel a little bit downcast inside. Maybe it's because you read some social media posts of other people's amazing goals for the new year or story of what transpired in their past year. And, you know, you just don't feel like, I'm not sure I was better this year. Maybe you feel more like this guy. <laughs> it's been a whole year since I didn't become a better person. Okay, we don't want that to be what any of you say, and I doubt that that's true for any of you. But the truth is, a lot of times we feel that way when we hear the word better. And I always ask myself, what kind of better are we talking about when we say better this year or better in 2019? Well, we're talking about knowing Jesus better, which Jared mentioned, knowing Jesus better so that we can be more like him. We wanna learn what God has already said he intends to do in us, to make us more like him. And in this new series, that's where we're going. Paul said it this way in Romans 8, 29. He said, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his dear son. Our shorthand Jesus wants to make us more like him. That's God's intentions for all of us. And each week, we're gonna tackle one of the ways that God does accomplish that in us. This week, we're starting where he starts. It always starts with our relationship with him. Not your husband's, not your best friend's relationship with him, but your, be your relationship with him. Week two is gonna be about our relationship with his church. That is this messy imperfect group of people that we're all seated amongst and are part of, right? The church. We're going to talk about that. And then the next week, we're going to talk about that small group of people that know your story and that will hold you accountable to the better that you say you want to become in 2019. And week four is all about our relationship to the things that God's given us, our time, our talent and treasure, and everybody's got some of those. And here's the deal. After the four weeks, we believe that each one of these weeks, the Holy Spirit's going to speak to you individually. He's going to tailor a next step for you to become more like him, that you can engage with. I don't know if you've experienced it, if you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, you maybe noticed the Holy Spirit's a pretty smart guy. Okay, he knows what's going on in our lives. It's like God reads our mail every week. He does that for us as well. And he's gonna do that and give us each a next step. So are you ready to dive in? Okay, so this week I get to talk about our relationship with God. I wanna start with a story. Uh, I worked in an ER for two years prior to getting married to Jared. And there were four doctors, you know, on rotation there, and a bunch of nurses, orderlies, that kind of thing. So a bunch of us in there, but uh, we got kind of close because I worked the four to midnight shift. That's a really busy shift in an ER in McKenzie Willamette in, in um, Springfield. So 
While I was doing that, I got to know each of the doctors. Dr. Studenberg was this wonderful German man, and I kind of had an affinity with him because he reminded me a lot of my dad, and he had this stubborn refusal to respond to the gospel, except in the way I'm going to mention in just a minute. I would share Jesus with him, and he always had the same response. And then there was Dr. C, Charlie. And uh, Charlie was just this amazing Christian doctor that I worked with there in the ER, and he was friends with Dr. Studenberg. The thing is, both of us wanted Dr. Studenberg to uh, learn to love Jesus, to come to know Jesus. And Charlie would ask Dr. Studenberg to take shifts for him whenever he wanted to be at something for his church or if he had had to miss church too many times because of the ER schedule. And he also would take it so he could have some extra time with his family because Charlie had a lot of kids. Well, Dr. Studenberg, when I talked to him about the gospel, he had this same reply. He said, oh, I'm riding Charlie's coattails. I got that covered. I'm riding Charlie's coattails. Now, I wasn't the only one he said that to. He told Charlie that. He saw his covering for Charlie's shifts as him gaining favor with God. You know, I'm going to ride it into heaven with him. Um, that's what I'm banking on. And uh, Dr. Studenberg suffered from ulcers, and he decided to have surgery for them that had been developed. And something went wrong in the surgery. They just had a complication. He developed sepsis. And they had to ship him up, to fly him up to OHSU because of that. And um, he was in very uh, grave condition. So uh, Do- Charlie and I got together, and we met, and we prayed for him that um, Charlie was going to go up and see him. And he was going to share with him again. And he said, I'm going to share with him about the coattails. And so we prayed together. And he went up. And um, he was gravely ill. But he shared with him. He said, he took Frank's hand. And, you know, that wouldn't have happened unless he is semi-comatose. So (laughs) he took Frank's hand. And he said, I'm here to talk to you about my coattails. And then he just shared the simple gospel with him, that he didn't need to do anything to earn God's love, that he didn't need to do anything to be forgiven, to be included, to be accepted, except receive what God had already done for him through Jesus. He just shared the simple gospel that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died in this place so he could be forgiven past, present, and future. And when he gave him an opportunity to respond... He responded and said, I want to say yes to Jesus. A couple days later, he slipped into a coma. I was scheduled to go up then. I still went up. And I just took his hand. There was no visible response until I said, I heard that you said yes to Jesus instead of Charlie's coattails. And he squeezed my hand. That was the only response that I got during the visit. And he went to be with Jesus several days later as a father in his 40s. Why do I tell that story? Because as we talk about our relationship with Jesus, it's important that each one of us knows that no one else's relationship with Jesus can substitute for our own relationship with Jesus. Whatever your spiritual legacy is, be it one where you had Christian parents and they talked about faith all the time. Be it one that you had Christian parents and they didn't really act like it most of the time. Be it, I mean, that happens, folks. Be it that you had, you had a really tumultuous life uh, at home. Whatever your spiritual legacy or whatever insights people have shared with you 
about Jesus as they've walked with the Lord. Our spiritual inheritance is for us to take hold of or to forfeit. Each person gets to make faith their own. That's what we call it. And you know, we are all about this from cradle to grave. That's what we're doing up in eKids is helping kids to make faith their own. Not just bank on mom and dad's relationship with Jesus. That's what we're talking about. You see, every believer in every generation gets to engage and grow and learn in his or her relationship with Jesus. And I just want to promise you today that your eighth grade Jesus will not be enough for your sophomore year in high school. And I want to promise you that your sophomore Jesus will not be enough for you in college. And I want to promise you that your college Jesus will not be enough as you begin to face the milestone decisions that happen in your 20s and onward. And your 30-something Jesus is not going to cut it in your 40s. And I can take this on through. And I'm 63. So I have a little mileage. I'm a high mileage unit, as my brother likes to say. (laughs) I don't like that term, really, but. (laughs) So each one of us can grow. Becoming like Jesus holds endless possibilities for growth. And God intended for that to not scare us, but to inspire us, to generate an excitement and a sense of adventure that a relationship with him entails and includes. So discovering who God is, getting his perspective on our lives, seeing the world with his eyes, that engages me, that inspires me, that excites me. And I hope at the end of our talk today that what we talk about relative to that will inspire you as well. And this is what I want to say is don't settle for less. You don't have to settle for less. That's in your hands, your decision making. Now, one of the building blocks for a relationship with God is prayer. And that's just the Bible's word for our talking to God and him talking to us. Talking and listening. Dialogue, not monologue. Dialogue, the word between us. Meaning that prayer is always a two-way street, though it sometimes isn't with us, is it? Sometimes I do more of the talking than God, um, maybe a lot of times. And and we'll, we'll talk about that. But as soon as I said the word prayer, I know because I know myself that there's a certain amount of us that probably our heart kind of went downcast. We kind of felt like, okay, that's like reading on social media somebody's goal. It's like you think about your experience with prayer and you find it wanting. You go immediately to your performance of prayer and you find it lacking. And today I want to suggest instead of seeing prayer as something on our to-do list, Or as an obligation. And isn't that true, what an obligation feels like? That's not what God wants our relationship to feel like. Or as an ambulance call. You know what those are, a 911 call, right, for emergencies. Instead, I want us to reorient our idea of prayer to a conversation with our best friend, Prayer is an opportunity to be with Jesus, to share a conversation, to gain his perspective. It's an invitation to nothing less than keeping God company. That's a little different than talking all the time. 
And I'd like you to see prayer as less of a task and an ambulance call and invite you instead to reorient your prayer to relating to God like you would a good friend. And with that in mind, let's read Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and form foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he's brought to the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I love how the message puts that here. It says, break out of the traffic and take a long, loving look at me, your high God, above politics, above everything. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I wanted you to hear the whole psalm as we look particularly at verse 10 because it comes to us in this context. You see, verse 10 is often quoted, and I'd like you to read it out loud with me if you will. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still. Hush. Be quiet. Stop what you're doing. Cease striving. This is an imperative verb. It is a command to us. The Latin word here for be still literally means to vacate. What do I vacate? I vacate all my responsibilities, all of the anxious thoughts that I might be carrying, and I quiet my mind, my will, and my emotions before God. I listen to him, and I shut everything else out. I let go of my man-made strategies that I've devised to solve the problems I'm facing or solve the problems that are happening around me or that I feel responsible for. I take a vacation from all that I'm thinking and doing, the everyday stuff of life, so that I can be with God fully, completely. And God is inviting us to take a break from our efforts here. He's inviting us to take a break and to be truant from our work and our busy schedules. Okay, now I have to let you know that taking breaks and being truant are not my strengths. First of all, there's some people here that were on the Guatemala teams this summer with me. 
the one at the beginning of the summer and the one at the end. And we did this medical clinic build, and that was four hours a day. And then, then we did the kids and visiting homes and all that wonderful stuff after that. But we had four hours. And I didn't realize that everybody was waiting for me to take a break for permission to take a break. And I don't take breaks. Not when I have four hours, I was like, okay, let's get her done, you know. And it was hard work, and it was rather warm work as well. And, and finally, somebody said, I got to take a break, you know. And I felt so bad because I made them feel bad about taking a break. But that kind of describes me, the, the person who doesn't take a break easily. Here's the deal, though. I also wasn't very good at being truant. Okay, I, my best friend and I were seniors, we were cold valedictorians of our class, and we decided it was time that we skip school. I had never skipped school in my 12 years of schooling. That just was not me. I would have gotten in huge trouble, too. But that to say, we decided to do it together because what could they do to us at graduation? This was just like a week or two away. So we um, gathered our stuff. We thought we were being such bad girls, okay? And I kind of wanted to do that. I don't know why. I felt like I needed to break out of my image or something, just immaturity. But we grabbed sleeping bags. We grabbed some favorite reading material and all the junk food we could afford. And we hid at the end of the bleachers for the swimming pool. We were both competitive swimmers, which was at our high school. So in other words, we skipped school at school. <laughs> yes, it's true. It's that lame. We skipped school at school. I was not very good at being truant. I'm very lame, and students, if you need more creative ideas, see me later. Okay. <laughs> but here's the other thing. I'm also an activator, Strength Finders. If you're familiar with Strength Finders 2.0, activator is one of my five. I share that with Ray Campos. We, we love to joke about that together. But here's the deal. Let me read the first two sentences of how it describes somebody with activator strength. <clears throat> When can we start is a recurring question in your life. You are impatient for action. So imagine this as I read Psalm 46, as I hear God say, hush, be still. Stop what you're doing. Cease striving. Well, Philip Yancey, in his wonderful book, one of my favorites on prayer is this book by him. I highly recommend it. On prayer, he says, he describes being still much more bluntly. He says, we stop doing all the important things that we have to do in our capacity as God, little g, and leave it to him to be God, big G. One of God's favorite metaphors for Christians is the body of Christ. And Paul writes that Jesus is the head of that body. So to act, to live out, to walk as Christ's bodies, to move in, in concert with him, we need an unbroken connection to the head, to Jesus. So when we stop our busy lives and we sit with God, we see the world from his eyes. We get a glimpse of what matters to him. We get a look at his priorities in our world, on our story. And then we can join him in some meaningful activity. Verse 1 of this psalm gives us a really good reason to be still 
before God. It says God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. When I read this whole psalm and read the description of the time, and there's really three kinds of trouble that he talks about in it, but it's talking about a really messy time. I think of our own time right now. I think it very well describes our time. I think of the volatile stock market. And I don't know if anybody else has looked at that and thought about retirement funds or anything like that, or the government shutdown and the uncertainties it's created for many people in ways we can't even imagine because we don't know how the fingers of the government gets into the everyday lives of people, whether it's buying the drugs they need or getting to a place they were going to visit. But I, I don't just think of those things. I also think about the lack or the struggle that our leaders in government are having to work collaboratively together. I think of the erratic communication and decision-making that we see even at the highest levels throughout our government. And then I read verse 2 of this psalm. Remember, this is all context, where God says, therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. God says, be still. Stop what you're doing and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations and I will be exalted in the earth. When we approach God in the middle of whatever is going on in our life, we can be certain of his presence. And it is an attentive presence. I want to contrast that with how I was sometimes as a parent. I hope that others have would confess they've shared this with me. Haven't you ever been where your kids are kind of like sharing a bunch of stuff with you and you're kind of caught up in something else and they're just sharing away. Their commentary is going strong and I'm just going, uh-huh, 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 or other meaningless words like that to fill the space. But in my mind, I'm someplace totally different. And sometimes we think that's how God's presence is, that it's not, it's, he's there, but it's very nebulous. He's not focused. He's not centered. He's not looking at us, but he's not like us. He is a perfect parent. He's completely attentive. You have his full attention. When a journalist asked Thomas Merton, who is a 20th century monk, died in 1968, but a wonderful Christian thinker, to diagnose the leading spiritual disease of our time, the monk gave a one-word answer, efficiency. Why? The journalist inquired. Because from the monastery to the Pentagon, the plant has to run, and there is little time or energy after that to do anything else. What was he saying? What was he saying to us? that we are so busy with the business of life that we have little energy for anything else. He was commenting on the lack of margins that we live with. He was commenting on our prayerless striving that's fostered and fed by our culture. Gary Haugen is founder and CEO of International Justice Mission. This is an amazing organization which deals with human trafficking, with slavery, with torture, with illegal detention, and that helps widows and orphans around the world that find themselves in compromised situations. But you see, he knew that this was going to be filled with terrible stories, that people's lives were going to be at stake in what they were doing. He knew that there would be an endless supply and demand 
for their services, for what they did, for their help. And this is what he said. He said, I feared a slide toward prayerless striving. So every day the entire staff meets, which is now 600 people worldwide. And they begin the day with 30 minutes of silence in which we encourage prayer and meditation. We don't talk. We don't work. We sit at our desks and pray. And then... Every day at 11 a.m., we get together and we share our caseloads with each other and we pray over those cases and the work that we're going to do. But first, they're still. Even though in that 30 minutes of silence, there are undoubtedly more people being enslaved, more people, more children being sold into sex trafficking more people being illegally detained. They understood the priority. In the middle of their very important work, they were still. They stopped and listened and looked for what God was saying and doing and his perspective on things. I don't know, I feel like our prayer or prayer times often resemble 911 calls more than conversations with a friend. When do you call 911? Yeah, for crisis, emergencies, right? And we do most of talking and we ask for stuff and we ask for help and we say, get here as quick as you can because we're going to die if you don't or whatever the case might be. But when we call a friend or text them or FaceTime them, what, what do we do that for? We call them anytime and for everything. For a friend, we're, we're looking for a laugh. We want to share a story. We share something great that just happened. We send them a picture that we think they'd enjoy, or we call and give them the rant of the day, the thing that we can't say to just anyone, but we need to get off our chest, or we call them like we might God, and we have the 911 call with our friend, help, I need your help right now. We share with them the good, the bad, and the ugly, and that's what prayer is meant to be. So being still and keeping company with God, and sitting with him, and looking at life through his eyes, and listening is so important. How could we do more of that in 2019? Well, let's consider Jesus' example. Luke 5, 16, Dr. Luke, who was one of Jesus' traveling companions, and personally accompanied him on a lot of his travels, made this He saw him up close and personal. He summarized Jesus' prayer practice this way. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Luke shared this summary on the heels of just one of many times where Jesus had just healed somebody and he was trying to get away. And what happened? A whole crowd gathered around him and wanted to be healing and wanted to hear him teach again. Now, how many of you would agree with me that Jesus' activity and agenda were pretty important? Think it was? Think it was as important as the stuff we do every day? Yeah. He's the savior of the world. Yet, Jesus found time to be still. To get away, to be with his father. Because he understood that his life depended on it. 
Listen to his words in John 5, 19, where he says, very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. And then again in John 12, 49, he says, for I did not speak on my own, but the father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the father has told me to say. My summary, Jesus said, I can do nothing by myself. I only do what I see the father doing. I only say what I hear the father saying. That sounds strangely similar to Jesus' words to all of us as his disciples in John 15, 5, when he declared, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Hmm, remain. That's another word a lot like be still. I call it when going nowhere is the way to go. It means to be at home with, to dwell with, if you will, to sit with, to be with. It means to be intimately connected to Jesus because apart from him, we can do nothing. And that's what prayer is all about, our connection with Jesus, getting to know him and him talking with us, not checking something off our to-do list or something that we save for the emergencies of life or an obligation that we have to drag along with us and feel guilty about that we didn't do more or more often. But here's the deal, friends. If it's so important, then how can we make sure that it happens in our lives this year more frequently? Well, I just want to take a look at Three of Jesus' practices. Just mention them from Dr. Luke's summary. They won't be new for you. First of all, Jesus prayed often. Often, that's a habit word. What it means, it says that Jesus prayed frequently. He prayed on numerous occasions. He prayed a lot. He prayed again and again. Whatever language you use, it all indicates that he had a habit of doing it frequently. Secondly, Jesus withdrew to pray. And withdraw is a word of the will. You know, to withdraw means to extract oneself from a particular situation or position. And withdraw is also a word that means to pull away from, to remove yourself from a particular place. And apparently Jesus had to make room in his schedule, just like we do, in order to be with his father. He had to choose to step away from some other things, then we might step away from. But it was always involved people, people's requests, people's needs, people even pleading with him to stay longer and do more. And yet he could say no because he would withdraw to be with his father. Thirdly, Jesus withdrew to a lonely place. Apparently a particular kind of place matters when we pray. And for Jesus, it was always a lonely, solitary place. You can find this at least five other times in the Gospels that this is emphasized. This just means a place free from other distractions and people. When Jesus talked about prayer in Matthew 6, he does the same thing. He says, you need a room and it needs to have a door you can shut. It was this idea of privacy. Now, I don't think I even need to 
tell you why a lonely place would be more helpful. I can tell you how it felt as a young mom. When my kids were really little, we didn't have any spare bedroom or any, any space like that. And so, and I was a morning person, but so were my kids. And I didn't want them to wake up, but I wanted to spend time with Jesus. So I got a pillow and the bathtub. I found that worked good because the pillow helped keep the hard bathtub from distracting me. And the bathroom was a great place to hide out from very young children. Uh, it kept them from hearing me, so I didn't wake them up. But you know what? Here's what I've learned. It doesn't matter what phase of life you're in, whether you're a teenager, whether you're in your 20s, whether you're going to college, whether you find yourself as a, a, a single person sharing with roommates in an apartment, whether you're um, experiencing life as a newlywed couple, whatever your story today, there are always going to be distractions. You see, Jesus gets it because he had them too. But I want to mention a couple just at my stage of life. First of all, there's this one. Okay, I never have time with Jesus. I don't try to be still in my bedroom because the bed speaks to me. It speaks to me and says, come back. Okay, the next one is my kitchen. These are not my bed or kitchen, by the way. But here we go, this kitchen, yes. But this represents what speaks to me in my kitchen. If it's not dishes in the sink, then it could be the meal that's coming up. It might be something else that needs to clean, like the front of the refrigerator. Um, just, I don't know, it talks to me when I sit there. So I never spend time with Jesus, devoted still time in the kitchen. Another one that comes up, social media. That is a distraction in being still before the Lord. And since I get my scripture program sent to me each day, it's very important that I write that down in my journal and then I ditch the phone. I have to engage my will to keep a lonely place lonely. That's what I've learned. I have to do that because a lonely place gets unlonely real fast through different means. So Jesus made a habit of praying, and he included being still in this to listen to his father and get his perspective and directives from him. And this means that Jesus always got what his father wanted for him. That's a little different than what we think sometimes. You see, praying does not necessarily get us what we want, but what God wants for us. And even if it's something difficult, it's always better than just what we wanted. So as I was thinking about keeping company with God and being still before God and just listening, I couldn't help but think back to one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 3, the story of the boy Samuel who was learning to hear the Lord. The truth is, it says in verse 7 that he didn't yet know the Lord and so one night he goes to bed and he hears God speak his name. Well, he hears someone say his name, Samuel, Samuel, call out to him. And he like doesn't recognize it. So he thinks it's Eli, the priest calling. He goes down the hall to his room and, you know, wakes him up and nope, that wasn't me. Get back to bed. He went back to bed. Same thing over again a second time. Finally, the third time he goes down to Eli and Eli, who's walked with the Lord for many years, um, but wasn't in a, in a great place with God right then, finally gets the picture. This might be God talking to him. So he tells him, if he calls out to you again, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And that's what Samuel does. He goes back to bed. He hears the voice call him again three times, Samuel, Samuel. And then God just begins to speak and to show him something about himself. Now, I don't want you to get hung up on the word that he got, but the fact that he heard from God. 
because this is what I want you to remember about that story as it relates to our being still, even this week and in 2019. It's this, even a young boy who was just coming to know the Lord, when he positioned himself to listen, he heard God. And he knew it was God. And that needs to happen for us because we take a great bit of responsibility in what if it's not God and what if this and what if I do this? What if it's pizza? What if it's what I dreamed up on my own? We spend so much time on that that we're not still. Stillness time is a time to meditate with about who God is and in the middle of that, he speaks without us saying a word and changes everything. So just a little uh, confession. Um, I was listening to the Lord this past week, and I was, um, it was just being quiet. And he talked to me about something that's actually been a perspective I've held but not talked about uh, for quite some time. And um, it comes out of Matthew 4. Verses 12 through 14 were the ones he highlighted for me. When Jesus heard that John, that's John the Baptist, had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum, which is by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. And then I wrote, our culture tells us, go big or go home. Jesus did the opposite. John the Baptist is put in prison, soon to be beheaded. And what does Jesus do? He retreats to the boonies, to the blue-collar, small-village outposts in the lowly region of Galilee, fishing villages. It says he withdrew. He did it on purpose. He went small. What I notice about Jesus in this passage, because that's what I like to ask, what did I see about God here, is that he operates counterintuitive to our culture, to the world's usual approach. Instead of go big or go home, he goes small. And what happens? The crowds follow. He brings such good news that it can't be squelched, even with remote locations, lonely places, and small population bases. He went to Sweet Home, not Portland. He continually refused the big lights and the large stage. He did not rely on the usual props of our culture to get his message out or to establish his credibility. Jesus was and is counter to our culture's Big noise equals big following. He was the master of the understated, of spectacular deeds done in quiet fashion, in small places, sometimes even private. No press needed. In fact, he discouraged it. So then I thought about how it intersected my life, and I wrote in my journal like I would for my soap, you know, the application. But then it was time to just listen to what God had to say. And I have to say that from the time that uh, we've been coming to Evergreen, um, one of the things that I looked at was the location of our facility. Not the wonderful people, but the location of our facility. It was less than ideal to me. It was kind of like a liability. In church planting, you learn to, to build where the town is growing, to go um, where people are moving to, and um, to be in very prominent well visible would be, say, location, location, location. And so I always kind of considered a liability, and this was kind of reinforced with uh, inviting our friends, and they'd come and they'd say, man, that's a lot longer, a long way out there, because we live five miles from here, and for some of them, I guess that's long. And 
here's what the Lord said to me. This is like, I wasn't thinking about this. I, had, I wasn't bringing this up. It was not on my mind. He said, Anne, have you ever considered that Evergreen's location is like Galilee? On the fringe of the city, a little outpost like Capernaum rather than the big lights of Jerusalem? This place is exactly like my choice for places to reveal myself. I am not limited by your location. It is part of my purposes. This is what I'm talking about when I talk about being still, is that it might not even be something you're aware of, but you sit down with God and you get quiet and he can intercept you about something you weren't even thinking about. I hadn't even stretched the application over to that. It was totally out of the blue, you could say, for me. Imagine the things he wants to say to us and show us. But more importantly, how he wants to be with us and pass his life on to us. Better in 2019, you absolutely can be, and it all begins with your relationship with Jesus. With sitting with him, listening to him, being with him, connecting with him like you would your best friend. I pray he would be your best friend by the end of this year. If he's not, I invite you. He's inviting us to let go of prayerless striving in our lives and instead to engage with an attentive, ever-present God who loves us deeply. This year, let's add listening, a pause in our prayer to be still and keep company with God. So I want to mention three possible next steps that might help you start in your journey on your pause. One of those might be to take 20 minutes alone time before you go to sleep tonight. Just you and God quietly being aware of his presence, listening to him. Or perhaps something that will help you launch in pausing with God would be to come this Wednesday for our prayer and worship night, a portion of which is going to be devoted to you sitting with God, listening. After which we'll let those who want to share some of the things they heard. Or perhaps making a daily appointment with God in your calendar this week for listening and being still with him. The pause. Let's be better this year with a Jesus pause. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I just want to confess that in my activator self, in my never take a break girl mode, that I don't always stop I don't always withdraw from all the work around me just to sit in your presence. It's like if it's not going to accomplish one of the things on my to-do list, then I won't do it. Lord, we just confess today that all of us could grow in the pause. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, to help us this week. Fill us afresh and anew. And Lord, I do pray for anyone here who instead of feeling inspired feels condemned because Lord, taking the pause will not give us better standing with you. That's not the point. Taking a pause will help us enjoy you and know you. 
and become more like you, and that will be better in all kinds of ways. It's our prayer, Lord. Help us be better in 2019 by taking a pause with you. In Jesus' name, amen.